We're in Natomas at the site where it all began for the Sacramento Kings in 1985. This temporary structure was built for the team in less than a year. The seating was only 10,000. It was known as Arco Arena No. 1. The Kings played here for three years. It's still here and now the home for the State Department of Consumer Affairs. And look, the parking signs are still up for the team's fans. Let's roll the time machine. Kings final practice inside Arco Arena 1 before they began their first season. Big names back then, Reggie Theus, Joe Klein, and Tank Thompson. The man behind the Kings moving here from Kansas City, team owner Greg Lukenbill, who had big plans to quickly build a bigger arena, and everybody was mostly behind that. I've seen the Kings in action, and I like them. And I think uh, they're instrumental to Sacramento. I think they will really help Sacramento grow more. I think it's important to the city's image, but I've lived here all my life and Sacramento's never supported sports. If they don't do so well, it might be a burden. We think that Sacramento is a great community uh, and we think that, uh, we think that uh, the temporary facility suits our needs as a temporary facility. Whatever the future held for the Kings in building a bigger arena wasn't clear during the early days of the team here. Owner Lukenbill felt he was getting a political runaround. If the promises that were made to me were kept, we wouldn't be sitting in a temporary arena right now. How confident are you about January? I don't know. I have no level of confidence. I'll tell you one thing that's for sure about politics. It's never done till it's done. Well, it was done and built in 1988 and was the King's home until the Golden One Center opened in 2016. But the early rollicking days of the Sacramento Kings in their first building will never be forgotten by those old enough to remember 38 years ago. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, how are you everybody? It's uh, Tim Hanlon here, as always, and it's Good Seats Still Available. Somewhat, as always, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We thank you for finding us, and hopefully we will keep you entertained uh, this week uh, as we go westward. Uh, actually, mostly Pacific Northwestward, uh, with a bit of a diversion, as you can sort of uh, get a hint of from that clip. But uh, let me explain uh, uh, about that. Uh, our guest this week is Bob Witsit, a former sports executive and still very much involved in lots of stuff uh, going on in professional sports and then some. And uh, a name that uh, if you uh, are a sports fan in Seattle or Portland, um, probably may remember and know uh, if uh, you know your Seattle Seahawks history, your Portland Trailblazers history, your Paul Allen ownership of both of those franchises history, you will know the name Bob Witsit as being uh, a top level uh, executive in both of those organizations, um, as well as a predecessor organization, the Seattle Supersonics, which of course fit our category of defunctness uh, strongly and sadly, as we've discussed in previous episodes. But um, uh, Bob Witsit was uh, pretty much the chief architect, uh, although it wasn't around in a in a is in a formal form uh, when the 95-96 Sonics made the NBA Finals after 
um, a number of years in the darkness prior. But uh, the undeniable uh, imprint of uh, Trader Bob, as he was known, uh, bringing in people like Sean Kemp uh, and um, you know trying to help uh, Barry Ackerley, the then Sonics owner, um, climb the mountaintop after uh, the uh, the previous summit uh, back in the uh, late seventies and and early eighties. And this is the story of Bob Whitsitt um, as we get into essentially a life in sports management. Um, and I will tell you that uh, the the ostensible reason for me reaching out in the first place to Bob is yes, he has a book coming out. We'll talk about that in a minute. But was his uh, uh, integral uh, role in the early '90s. Uh, version of the Seattle Supersonics. But uh, as you will hear in this conversation, I literally discovered along the way that there were probably two or three other pit stops, shall we say, along that road. And uh, we kind of got into those uh, pretty deeply, which was uh, kind of a a, a wonderful discovery along the way. Uh, In particular, uh, which uh, the clip that you just heard kind of alludes to, Uh, Bob, his second job well, his second stop, he had multiple jobs at the Indiana Pacers, uh, them uh, in the late 70s coming out of the ABA and becoming an NBA franchise and the transitions there. And as a young intern and, and working his way up the uh, the food chain there, lots of interesting uh, stories and anecdotes there. So you'll hear that in this conversation. But you'll also hear about the transition to his second port of call, which was Kansas City and the Kansas City Kings. Uh, and we have been looking for an entree to the Kansas City Kings story for quite some time. One of the most um, uh, traveled and relocated franchises in all of ABA, ABA NBA history, he says. And uh, some very interesting uh, dynamics there. And uh, the end of that franchise is where Bob was, too, uh, and helping uh, them relocate to Sacramento in the Arco Arena. If you remember the Arco Arena, there were two of them, but the first one, which was how can you best put it? More like a, I guess, an office complex or an office building sort of converted into uh, a cozy 10,000-seater for some time, which became a very interesting stop along the NBA uh, circuit for a number of years. And there's a whole sort of uh, bunch of anecdotes there, too. So um, that's uh, we're going to talk a lot about that stuff uh, with Bob coming up in just a few moments' time. Uh, the book uh, that I'm alluding to is available for pre-order. It comes out in October, uh, but you can order it now because uh, you'll probably want to read it because it's. Um, I've had the opportunity to see it, and um, it's. Uh, it just we're just scratching the surface in our conversations. Uh, it's called Game Changer: An Insider Story of the Sonics' Resurgence, the Trailblazers' Turnaround, and the Deal That Saved the Seahawks. Uh, and um, you can, of course, order it ahead of time on Amazon, or if you go to our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, search up this episode number 311 with Bob Witsit, and uh, you'll have uh, a convenient link there with a little bit of uh, referral love, thank you, uh, to purchase, or at least ahead of time, pre-order uh, the book. Uh, but we're going to give you sort of a, a, a sampling of, uh, of what to expect uh, in this conversation. And the clip, uh, to kind of close the circle on that, uh, that you just heard was from earlier this year in 2023. I think it was in April. It was a clip from ABC 10, uh, which is KXTV television, the Tegna station in Sacramento, uh, and a little bit of a history of the Sacramento Kings specifically uh, when they uh, arrived and uh, sort of uh, found their way into what then became the Arco Arena, the first version thereof. And as you'll hear in our conversation with Bob in a few minutes, uh, the naming of that was a pretty 
uh, novel uh, proposition because it had not been done before in the NBA. That is the naming rights for a, uh, a facility. Um, and that clip was uh, voiced by uh, uh, Walt Gray, I believe was an anchor there at ABC 10. Uh, and um, for you uh, Sacramento Kings fans who were there at the beginning, uh, you will uh, remember with probably with fondness the uh, the arrival, the NBA discovering Sacramento and bringing the Kings along for the ride. Bob was there too, and he's going to take us on that ride uh, in this conversation, which is coming up right now. So buckle up, uh, have a seat, uh, maybe a cool beverage. And uh, here is our conversation uh, that we have with Bob Witsit uh, about seven or eight days ago. Please, as always, enjoy. Can you, for our audience, give us a little bit of background as to how you got into the realm of sports executiveness uh, before we even get into the um, the, the part about uh, the, your uh, your work with the Seattle Sonics and and all the other stuff, it's really kind of a boring part of the story. To be honest with you, I've always loved sports uh, since the time I was a little kid. I was always outside playing sports. Whatever sport was in season, I would play it. Uh, I played every sport in junior high. I played football, basketball, and baseball in high school. Then I went to college and I lettered in three sports, football, basketball, and baseball. And, uh, you know, I just didn't know anything other than every day of the year I'm playing a sport, I'm practicing. And when that sport was over, when football season was over, the basketball team had already been practicing for two weeks. The next morning I put the tennis shoes on, I got in the gym and I started basketball practice. So it's something I've always loved. But when I was in college... Uh, unlike some of my teammates, I realized I wasn't good enough to play professional. I really had no dreams of being a pro player. I was pretty realistic. And I learned about a graduate program in sports administration. At the time, it was at Ohio University, which had the only uh, graduate program in the country. In the late yes, so our, our friend Andy Dolich, who were, uh, was on our previous episode, uh, uh, speaks highly of that. And apparently was the first ever sort of a professional master's program was at uh, the Ohio University. That is absolutely true. And I think Andy was probably a few years ahead of me. So I um, you know, I actually ended up, you know, to cut to the, the story a little bit, I ended up applying both at Ohio University and also Ohio State. And Ohio State was in the first year of their graduate program. So I went to Ohio State. I got my uh, master's degree in sports administration, was fortunate enough to, uh, as a completion of the degree, you have to do an internship. And I literally uh, wrote, this is long before internet, I wrote to every NFL team, every NBA team, every Major League Baseball team, every National Hockey League team, a number of arenas and stadiums, colleges, you know, and I got rejected by everybody. And uh, eventually, the Indiana Pacers called me, and I went down there for an interview. I got the internship, and I was absolutely committed that once I got that foot in the door, nobody was going to push me out. And uh, my career started with the Indiana Pacers. And, um, you know, that's kind of it. It was a, a young guy who had a real passion Learned about uh, sports as a business really long before it became a business. When I got into the NBA, that's back when the NBA finals were on tape delay. So when you'd watch the game at 1030 or 1130 at night, depending upon your time zone, 
you already knew who won, but, uh, you know, a few years later, there was some guys named uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson came into the league. A few years later, a guy named Michael Jordan came into the league and the NBA just took off like a rocket ship. And uh, I was fortunate to be there when it was on the ground. And then I was uh, a part of the, uh, uh, the tremendous rise it had. So really just uh, a guy who the only way I thought I could get into sports was if I could get my foot in the door. I thought the best way to get my foot in the door was to try to get an internship through graduate school. Uh, I did. I got lucky. It worked out for me and uh, uh, just loved the career I had ever since. So what what uh, what years were you or what year was this that you uh, walked into the doors of the Pacers? Uh, 1978 was the first season. So I was with the Pacers for four seasons. I started out as an intern, but uh, that's whatever the bottom rung is in sports. I was one one rung below that. I was the <laughs> uh, I think I wrote in the book. I'm, I was the gopher's gopher. So but I loved it. I was uh First guy there, last guy to leave. I, I had no life. I knew nobody in Indianapolis. It was all I did and uh, learn, learn, learn. I loved it. But the interesting thing was the NBA was on very shaky ground back then. And a lot of the ownerships group, ownership groups were very uh, unstable financially. And as a result, we had a period of time somewhere during my four years, I think in the early first or second year, where the owners couldn't meet the payroll. So employees didn't get a paycheck for six weeks. And since I was making virtually nothing, I was living on a, a friend's couch in his apartment, it didn't affect me quite as much as it did people that had a mortgage and a family to, to raise. So people were quitting and every time somebody would quit, they'd take the low guy like me and move me up a, a notch or two, give me a, a better title, a lot more responsibility, no more money. But really, uh, on the job training, you know, better than anything you ever learn in school. You know, you learn how to do a cash flow budget. You learn how to sell tickets. You learn how to negotiate. You, you learn how to market. You know, you just you understand what ownership is looking for. Um, so it was really an interesting time. I would never wish it on anybody. But if you want to learn your craft, there's no better way to learn it than uh, when things are not going well. Well, so so take me back though to that period of time because it's also important, right? You're you're walking in that door, you're getting that badge, you're in the building. As I as I mentor uh, interns in the media space, kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, you're not getting paid, maybe, or but you you got a badge, like you can you know you, you use the <laughs> leverage that opportunity as much as you can. Clearly, you were. But 1978, right? This is not even two years removed from the absorption. I, I think it's the only word you can really use of whatever teams that were negotiated to migrate from the ABA into the NBA, Indiana being one of them. And I, I think it's also lost uh, around this time too, that I don't know if you were part of this or this was just an ABA only thing, but uh, in Indianapolis, if I don't, if I remember correctly, they were doing telethons to keep the team in town. So you're exactly right. So four teams from the ABA um, came into the NBA, uh, the Pacers, New Jersey, Denver, and San Antonio. Uh, I got there. One of one of the conditions, there was a lot of conditions, but one of the conditions the NBA put on those four ABA teams that joined was they would not receive any share of the national television money for three years. And this is sound like a very low number today, but at the time that was $1 million a year. 
And so a franchise like the Indiana Pacers to not receive that $1 million a year was a big deal. And the year before I got there, they held a telethon to raise enough money through ticket sales to, in effect, uh, make up for that lack of a million dollars. And it really came down to, uh, you know, the clock striking 12 that they sold enough tickets to continue on. So when I got there, they were still on the uh, million dollar a year forfeiture program. So, so the budget had a hole in it to begin with. And the interesting thing was there was probably, you know, 20 people or less in the front office and there'd be a staff meeting every Monday. And the managing partner of the ownership group, who was a banker, uh, I think he worked for Indiana National Bank, would come over to the staff meeting. And I, as the intern, I'd sit in the, in the room, not at the table, but kind of in the corner. And I'd, I'd listen to everything. And it was a real thrill to be there. But every single Monday before uh, the guy's name was John Jewett, before he would leave the staff meeting and go back to his real job, he would start giving a speech on we have to sell season tickets. Now, the GM decided not to have a sales staff. Nobody was selling tickets. And that's the lifeblood of the franchise. You have to sell season tickets. He even went as far as he would take his shoe off and say, we've got to wear out the shoe leather. We've got to walk up and down the streets of downtown Indianapolis. You've got to go into every office building. You've got a cold call. And he'd pound the the conference table with a shoe. We've got to wear down the shoe leather. You got to sell tickets. Now, I may not be the smartest guy going, but I heard that speech every Monday. Then he would leave and I'd sort of do my gophers jobs or whatever they asked me to do. And nobody would ever be tasked with selling season tickets. So after my three months were up, I went to the general manager, actually the assistant general manager. And I said, uh, you know, it was uh, end of December. I said, I don't want to leave. I, I want to be here. Um, I got an idea. How about if I try to sell season tickets? You don't pay me anything, but you pay me whatever you think a fair commission would be. And that way, when uh, Mr. Jewett comes to the meeting on Monday, you could say you've got somebody work, you know, actually out selling season tickets, going up and down to those office buildings. And she said, let me think about it. And a few days later, she came back and said, I thought about it. And... Um, we're going to let you do that. And I forgot what the commission was, you know, 5% or 10% or something on the tickets. And, and I had no idea how to sell a ticket. I wasn't trained. I was, as soon as somebody would say, no, they're not interested. These were mostly telephone calls. I'd hang up. But over time, you kind of learn how to sell because you don't get a paycheck if you don't sell. And then after you sell a few tickets, you get, you gain a little confidence and then you start calling other teams who actually had sales departments and they would give you some sales materials and you'd learn. But that's really what got me in the door full time. Um, I guess it was some initiative, but it wasn't the initiative as much as it was. I knew how hard it was for me to even get the internship and how many rejections I had. I just had to find a way to stay on board. And uh, I did. And then, you know, one thing led to another and I started working my way up the ladder and good things followed from there. Well, we'll get to that in a second, but why the aversion corporately, corporately, uh, organizationally to just selling season tickets? You'd think that would be, I don't know, kind of a vital function. Tim, it's so logical. It makes so much sense. But that was my first experience of 
anything can happen in the NBA. Or, or if you said, you won't believe the story I'm going to tell you now, and it involves the NBA, the first thing I would say is, of course I'm going to believe it. There's been so many amazing things, so many illogical things, so many logical things, so many just when you think you've seen it all, something else comes along. But uh, it made no sense because if you don't – the year before they were having a telethon to sell tickets to keep the franchise afloat. You you would have thought the first thing they would have done was hire as many salespeople as they could on commission-only basis and maybe promise the, the leading salesperson a job at the end and, and go from there. But that's obviously not the case today. Today the NBA is very sophisticated and over the years – we all had sales departments that were the largest department in, in, the, in the company. We had sponsorship sales departments. We had service departments. I mean, I, I think once David Stern really got a hold of it and he, and he formed an MBA marketing department, a team services department, the MBA figured it out pretty quick and they pretty much insisted that teams have a sales staff. But I think people, people get into sports not because they want to be salespeople. They generally want to get into sports because they like the product on the court or on the field, or they like to market, or or they, they like some other aspect of it, but they don't like the grinding day-to-day -day business of asking people to buy tickets. And I, I tell people all the time, the best way to get your foot in the door is to come in, sell the product that the company is selling, bring in a lot of revenue, and if you're good at it, They'll find a place for you somewhere else in the company. So, uh, you know, there's not a business known to mankind that doesn't put a, a real emphasis on revenue. And uh, sports are no different. Describe a little bit about your your ascent there. And you said four years or so. What what um, uh, two questions? One, what, what, how do you make your next move? And maybe simultaneously what's happening with the nba in your mind how cognizant are you of its um i don't know uh close to i i wouldn't say near death but i mean it's it's shakiness versus it's perhaps now starting to get a little bit more solid well there's no question that when i started uh ncaa basketball was more popular than the nba uh bigger television ratings bigger audiences bigger fan support uh, all those things. And, and honestly, I think the shift started literally uh, 1979 uh, after the NCAA final between Michigan State and Indiana State, you know, the Magic versus Bird finals, which was a giant rating. Yeah, and the, la uh, and the last uh, year for the last year, of course, NBC was using uh, the uh, This Is It song by Kenny Loggins. Yeah, man. It might have been CBS, but I don't know which whichever network had it. Yeah, I agree with you. And then the, the, those two guys come in as rookies, and they happen to go into the arguably the two best markets, the two winningest franchises, the Lakers and the Celtics. And then they spend the next decade pretty much playing each other in the finals. So, from a marketing perspective, you had the two most popular players in college coming into the NBA, both becoming stars on great teams with great tradition and television started to grow and you know dr j and a few of these other guys were kind of winding down but the, the this was the the next real deal and then it was about four years i think four years later michael jordan came in after winning the championship in in, in north carolina 
And so Michael obviously took stardom to another level. So you just had the NBA star system just started to really grow, really blossom. Corporate partners like Nike teaming up with Michael Jordan and promoting Michael off the court, you know, through through their media sources and through the apparel and through the shoes. So now these star players were getting commercials and becoming brands of their own. And, and people are starting to recognize them. And the popularity is just starting to soar. As I said earlier, the NBA uh, put a, a NBA marketing department together. Teams started committing marketing dollars because the TV dollars started to go up. And wasn't very long before the popularity of the NBA grew and the college game declined. And part of the college game declining came a few years later as more and more of these underclassmen and then uh actually i started it with with sean kemp but some of the guys coming right from high school to the pros you know it used to be the guys would be in college for three or four years and and the ncaa would have them they could market them but now the ncaa was really having players for a year or so just sort of introducing them to the world and then they were jumping to the nba so there was just a lot of different things going on that all seemed to be working Right. It was a combination of uh, the winds blowing in many different directions the right way. And uh, once the league started getting momentum, owners started treating it less as a hobby, more as a business, started putting good business practices together. Uh, the local radio and television broadcast became very sophisticated and uh, very important uh, promotional vehicles in the markets. And uh, yeah, it was I was aware of it, but to be honest with you, while I was with the Pacers, we were more into survival mode and making sure we could meet the payroll and that we could make our franchise uh, successful. But the the uh, support we were getting from the NBA was fantastic. And uh, again, it was just a great time to learn. What what did you do after? Your, how do you how do you move on from the from the Pacers and where to and how? So when I was my last year with the Pacers, uh, after two years, uh, our local ownership group was pretty much out of money. And this is something people don't know, but Jerry Buss was in negotiations to buy the Indiana Pacers. And he actually had a uh, non-binding letter of intent signed. And he was in the due, due diligence period. And, and Buss and his people came in. They interviewed all of us. You know, Jerry's going to take over. He's an L.A. guy. He's going to build a championship. And during that period, that's when Jack Kent Cook decided to sell the Lakers and the Forum. Buss immediately said, I want that. I don't want the Pacers. And he got a friend of his, a guy named Sam Nassi, a Los Angeles businessman, to take his spot in the, in the Pacer acquisition. And Sam bought the team. So Sam owned it my last two years. And again, um, I got promoted up. And Sam decided to make the local uh, lawyer who handled the transaction, the general manager, and um, a guy named Bob Salyers. And Bob had a full-time law practice and didn't want anything to do with it. So Bob made me the assistant general manager and let me do everything. Uh, but I was only 24 years old, so it was a little, little much to sort of stamp a general manager title on me. One, I wasn't ready for it. And two, the, I think the optics would have been bad. But uh, as a 24-year-old, I'm negotiating a, a first-round draft pick, Clark Kellogg's contract. I'm negotiating, you know, media deals. Uh, I'm I'm dealing a lot with the league office at this time, and they know what I'm doing in Indiana. 
and the uh, the vice president of operations for the NBA was a fellow named Joe Axelson, who got hired out of the league office to go run the Kansas City Kings as president and general manager. And as he was building his staff, he talked me into leaving Indiana to become his right-hand man in Kansas City. Uh, and since our franchise was just really in survival mode, I thought it would be a good time to go to a team that actually could pay its bills and we could try to run the business a little bit more like a business. And um, so that's that's when I left the Pacers and uh, was recruited to go down to Kansas City and pick the job in Kansas City. Okay, well, now hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But uh, not necessarily the most stable franchise you're walking into there either, now is it? <laughs> well, it's all rel- rel- relative. It, uh, it was more stable, but um, after year two uh, in Kansas City, that local ownership group was having a lease, uh, an arena lease argument with the city, and got so fed up with the city that they uh, they put the team up for sale. And the irony is. There was a group from Sacramento that had been trying to buy the Indiana Pacers. Um, I got calls from the Pacers, from my old mentor, Bob Salyers, and they were all really down in the dumps. They were 100% sure that the Sacramento group was going to close on a transaction to buy the Pacers and the Sacramento. And I just kept saying, well, hang in there. You know, maybe something to happen. And at the last minute, Eli Lilly bought Market Square Arena. And um, the the Simons, Herb and Mel Simon, bought the Pacers, I think literally for, you know, under a million dollars and got a dollar lease at the arena. And the Sacramento group got so frustrated that they almost had a, a, an acquisition. It's a, and at that exact time is when the local Kansas City group put their team up for sale. And so literally they flew from Indianapolis down to Kansas City. And in the course of one weekend, made a deal to buy our franchise. I was unaware of it. My boss, Joe Axelson, the president and GM was unaware of it. And on Monday morning, the new owners came in and, and introduced themselves. And they told us from day one, we have two years left on our, our lease in Kansas City, the old Kemper Arena. If you guys can make it profitable in Kansas City and if the NBA will grant us an expansion franchise in Sacramento in two years, we will keep the team in Kansas City and we'll buy the expansion team in Sacramento. We'll split our ownership group in half. One half will own the Kansas City team. The other half will own the Sacramento team. Joe Axelson, you'll go out to Sacramento. You'll run Sacramento. Bob Witsit, you'll stay in Kansas City and you'll be promoted to president and GM and run Kansas City. So, we tried to explain that to the community. Nobody believed us, but we worked really hard for two years to try to make the team profitable. We were unsuccessful. So um, that would have been my third year there. And so at the end of my third year, they told me in the middle of the season, you're moving out to Sacramento. At the end of the season, we're moving the team out there. Your job is to put the presentation together for the ownership on why we should be allowed to move. Your job's to build an organization in Sacramento, hire everybody. Your job's to help us uh, get the the new arena built in time for the upcoming season. And we just went to work in really every area you can imagine. It was was like uh, drinking water out of a fire hose. I I never knew there was so much work that had to be done. But we 
we scrambled and literally the uh, the start of the next season, which would have been 85, 86, uh, the day of our first game, there were still construction workers in the arena putting seats in the building uh, before we opened the door. And uh, this is the old Arco, right? That was the old Arco arena. It only sat which, about which 10, really, right, really didn't look like an arena. It looked more like a office complex with a it, big space inside for basketball. It, it was actually designed as an office building. So the, 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 the play for the Sacramento ownership group was they had an enormous amount of land out at the intersection of I-80 and I-5. And the, it was zoned for agriculture. They wanted to get it zoned for commercial because they were real estate developers. And as you can imagine, in the capital of California, they've been trying for literally over a decade and, and failed at every stop to get it zoned. So their plan was, we're going to bring a professional sports team to our city, the first and only major league sports team. And the deal was this little patch of land up in, in, in this giant chunk of land they own by I-80 and I-5, they could actually build a commercial building on. I think it was about a five or, five or six acre parcel out of, you know, a thousand acres they had. And they said, we're going to build a temporary building that holds 10,333 people. That was the capacity. The NBA granted uh, the move on the condition that by year three, there was a, a, an arena suitable for the NBA, which meant at least 16,000 seats. And the NBA had the right to buy the team back at a pre-negotiated price and move it out of Sacramento if that wasn't done. So as you can imagine, there's a real uh, political process and a lobbying effort that was going on simultaneous with us building up our organization and, and doing all the things we had to do. And eventually the owners got conditional uh, zoning approval on different chunks of land to build the permanent Arco Arena, which by the way is now gone. The, the team has moved downtown. But um, I, I moved on after year one in Sacramento. We got the uh, building built, the team moved. We went from literally last in the league in revenue to top five in the NBA in revenue. Uh, we did a pretty innovative naming rights deal on the uh, the building, which was the first ever. And that caught the attention of a lot of owners in the NBA. And I was fortunate enough to be the person who put that deal together and sold it to Arco. And that's one of the things that helped. Uh, and one of the owners on the committee that had to approve our move, who uh, got to really review our business plans, what we thought we could do in Sacramento, and then saw what we actually did was the owner of the Seattle Supersonics. And that's when he kind of fired himself as president. He, he had owned the team for two years and nothing had gone right for him. And he decided he thought he should just be the owner. And he hired a, a 30-year-old guy from Sacramento named Bob Witzer to become the, the new president of the Sonics. So that's kind of how the stepping stones went toward me moving up the ladder. And so I was with the Kings for four years. Three of the seasons were in Kansas City and then the first season in Sacramento. All right, what's this? 417 Helmets, my goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show. Uh, fairly often, our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, 
If you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is, uh, and just about every league that's ever existed save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of. Uh, the WFL, remember the World Football League. How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your. All of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch and they're making more uh, all the time. And by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd, and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. All right, before we get to the Sonics, because obviously that's, that's a big uh, a big part of this. So uh, I got to ask you two questions about the the the, the, the former uh, location of the Kings. Um, I, two questions in particular. One, um, how much did you know about Joe Axelson? Because this is a guy at the time, right, who had been with the Kings organization for some time and had uh, been, I don't know, maybe the villain in, in Cincinnati and, and the villain in Omaha and – Maybe now the villain in Kansas City at the end of the day when he goes to Sacramento. I I, I, I don't think he was making many friends with this franchise, in the various organizations. One, is that true? And number two, how much of that, Corey, did you know about or did you care about? Uh, number one, it was true. Uh, and if you talk to players like Oscar Robertson, which I did not at that time, um, Joe would not be on their Christmas card list at all. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think all that is true. Uh, and I think as Joe was kind of being run out of town in, in, you know, from the old Kansas city, Kansas city, Omaha days, um, he got a job in the league office as the vice president of operations, which is kind of the, you know, person who oversees the officials and, and, and all the basketball related matters. So I knew that. And, and Joe was the person that general managers deal with from the team level on, you know, player fines, uh, you know, protest, you know, complaining about the referees, you know, the basket standards, whatever all the issues were, okay? So when Joe was asked to come back to Kansas City, it was by a group of local investors who liked Joe. They knew Joe, and they thought, they thought he might have the magic touch if 
they had the right ownership group and they had the, the money. And um, according to Joe, uh, they flew to New York and said, Joe, what do you want? Joe said, I want a five-year deal and just wrote down everything he could imagine that he wanted in a contract and they agreed to it, signed him. He flew to Kansas City and then he's, he decided, geez, I got to build a staff. And um, I came highly recommended. Plus he knew me from my pacer days. Uh, although I, I knew as a young guy going up the ladder, I'm never going to get invited to a perfect situation. Uh, if I get promoted and when I get promoted, I'm the guy that's always going to show up at the train wreck and I have to put it back together. Nobody's going to say, here's the best team in basketball. Uh, we're the defending champs. We have salary cap room and we'd like to let you run the show. That's just not how it works. So uh, I, I, Joe was a good guy. I like Joe. He wasn't really uh, much of a worker bee at that point in time. So he pretty much told me, you know, this is my retirement package go get it. It's, you know, do, do the best you can, but you get to kind of run the show. And literally Joe would kind of come in at noon, have lunch with me, find out what's going on. Then he'd watch his, his Chicago Cubs in the afternoon on TV. And uh, I think he enjoyed the ride. He enjoyed the ride out to Sacramento. Uh, he was a little uh, mad at me when I left Sacramento because I was doing all the work for him. But um, I told him, I said, Joe, I'm the number two guy here. I loved it. I, you know, I've got the building sold out for three years. The media deals are done, but this is a chance for me to be the number one guy. And, uh, and, and the owner was very gracious. He let me out of my contract in Sacramento, but, but to answer your question, uh, it didn't phase me at all because look, there's a lot of characters in this business. Uh, we all have um, perceptions about us that are, are sometimes true, sometimes not true. And in my case, I was just looking for opportunity. And, uh, uh, you know, I thought the Pacers were really sinking and they were because I was tired of sending the players their paychecks with only one signature on it. So I knew the check would bounce and they'd have to come back in so we could play the float and try to get the money we needed from the owner in California. We, were, we weren't even running a team. We were just – I was tired of the team showing up at a hotel and they – cut up our credit cards at the desk because they we hadn't paid the credit card bills. Um, you know, a lot of things were going on, but we couldn't really focus on the job so much because we were just trying to keep the team afloat. So I thought in Kansas City, I might have a chance to actually do some marketing and and be involved in some some exciting things, which actually was the case. We did not make it work as well as we needed to, but we at least had a chance to start working on things and and you know, being managers of, of the franchise. So, um, you know, it all worked out very well. No, it sounds completely logical that you'd want to be, you know, uh, have your shot at, at being being the boss. All right, one last question before we leave Kansas City. I, I don't mean to be painfully circling around it, but okay. it, it does this does intrigue me because the Kings were also playing that relatively new Kemper Arena against, uh, in the market, something that was uh, – I don't think anybody saw coming. That was the major indoor soccer league with the Comets and these Liwicky brothers. Um, how much of a – they were pretty competitive against you guys uh, in the local market. So to a point maybe where – maybe like St. Louis as well, they were kind of like the thing on on more than a few occasions. No, that's absolutely true. And, and I know the Liwickys, and I've known them since those days. And uh, actually, Todd and I worked together out here in Seattle – um, first at the Seahawks, and now I've been working with him and, and his crew on the 
the new arena and the, the launch of the Kraken. But uh, there were four Liwiki brothers, and they really hustled and did a fantastic job of introducing indoor soccer into the Kansas City community. Obviously, the ticket price was much, 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 much lower than an NBA ticket price, and they, they could give tickets away and do a lot of cool things. But they had a very young, exciting, fun event in the building. And I honestly think this was one of Joe's big mistakes. He kept seeing them as competition and getting mad at at, at, at their attendance because he knew they were papering the house and, and we weren't and we were trying to, to sell tickets. And I kept saying, Joe, there's always going to be competition in the market, whether it's soccer, uh, the, the Royals baseball team, the Chiefs football team. There, there's always something. College, this business is pretty simple. You have to do your job well. And if you do your job well, you'll, you'll get the support you need and, and we'll be fine. But you're not going to succeed by trying to make them fail. You know, that, and, and, and he sort of convinced the owners of his philosophy and that's when the owners were arguing with the city over our lease that they thought that the, the Comets had some advertising rights and other things that were granted to us. And I kept trying to say, guys, you're missing the boat here. If we go build a winning team, we market properly, we, we get good entertainment to supplement our team, we'll be fine. But instead of you're battling with a minor league sport that has a whole different set of object, of, of object uh, objectives than we have and um so yeah i think that was a, a bad thing but they uh, they did a great job obviously the league didn't you know do as well as as people had hoped for the long term but it, it helped introduce soccer it, it got the uh, soccer communities going um it's sports marketing it's entertainment you know really all those elements are the same they're just different products and um yeah and i think it you know and it was uh, Terry, Tracy, Tim, and Todd. I think Todd was the intern back then. Ironically, now we're both, you know, we're both at this stage of our careers. And um, I used to call them the Hustle Brothers in a very positive way. They hustled more than anybody I ever saw. They, you know, I thought I hustled, but there was four of them. They'd be in early, stay late. If If I'm speaking to the Rotary Group, they were there last week speaking to the Rotary Group. I mean, they... You know, and to this day, they still hustle. They're very, very good at what they do, and they 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 did a great job. And I think that was a little bit of the Kings organization taking their eye off the ball, which helped lead to the downfall of the Kings, you know, eventually moving to Sacramento. All right. Well, you're, you're we've gotten you to Sacramento. So tell us how you make the jump to uh, the Seattle SuperSonics. This is now a team. At this time in the what late '80s, correct? Uh, that was owned by uh, local media magnate Barry Ackerley, um, I believe at the time, correct? Yeah, Barry Ackerley bought the team in 1983, and um, in Seattle, a media person, but in Seattle, he was primarily known for the owner of all the billboards. Billboards, yeah. Um, but he had media properties around the country. Bought the team and did what a lot of owners do when they buy a sports team. They can't wait to run it themselves because it's a lot more fun and exciting than than uh, maybe their core business. And the Sonics, just a few years earlier in 79, won the championship. So, I mean, 
Uh, albeit on tape delay. <laughs> okay, but they won the championship, and For they've sure. been in the final. They've been in the finals in consecutive years, and they still had a number of those players on the roster. They had uh, Gus Williams, Fred Brown, Jack Sigma, to name a few, and so there was a great buzz in town, but. For some reason, Barry Ackerley didn't understand sports is about tradition. And one of the things you hope for is that your franchise has a great tradition, a great history, a great legacy, and you can build on that. That is a great thing. It's a hard thing when you don't have that because then you've got to create that and it takes literally decades to do that. He wanted nothing to do with the past. He wanted to cut off all ties to the past. He didn't even want to have the championship banner hanging in the building. That was Sam Shulman's team. This is my team. And nobody could convince him otherwise. So his first couple of years as president, he made himself president. He uh, you know, didn't re-sign Gus Williams. He cut the captain of the championship, Fred Brown, on, on the bus at training camp. He... Uh, wanted to put the games on his radio station. So he got into a battle with the local station, Cairo, which was carrying the games and made the announcer sit at the top of the building. He battled with the media. Uh, you name it, he did it. Plus his billboards, he always had more billboards up than he had permits. He was chopping trees down that were in front of his billboards, which didn't go well in the Northwest. So he, I knew going up that he was not a beloved guy in Seattle. I knew that, but uh, I also knew that after two years of losing money, losing games, uh, having, I think, the lowest attendance in the NBA or close to it, you know, this was not a good situation, but it did have a good history behind it. It, it did have a good fan base when things were going well. And it was just a great opportunity. I was dating at the time the uh, fairly recently hired vice president of the, the Sonics. Now my wife, uh, Jan Sundberg, she'd come back to Seattle from New York where she was working at ABC Sports and wanted a job in media. And she interviewed with Barry Ackerley and he wanted to hire her, but she didn't want to leave Seattle. So he said, why don't you come be the VP of marketing and broadcast? So I first got to meet Barry through that relationship. But then quickly, Barry was on the owner committee, one of seven owners that we had to keep making our presentations to to get their approval to take to the full board to move our team from Kansas City to Sacramento. And and so I would see Barry a lot on weekends when I would come up to Seattle to visit. And it was easy to tell him nicely all the things he was doing wrong because when you don't work for somebody, you don't have to uh, suck up to him quite the same way, right? You could <laughs> kind of tell it like it is. And I honestly think the thing that just really got his attention, nobody had ever sold a naming rights to an arena. Okay, there was there would have been a public name or two like the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, but the owner I was working for in Sacramento, since it was a privately funded arena, came to me one day and said, "Can we name this arena whatever we want?" And I looked at him. I said, "Yeah, you can you can name it after yourself if you want." He said, "No, no, 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 no. I want to put a, a commercial name on there and you know try to pay the bills." I said, "Wow, fantastic!" So he hired a company was going to pay him a 10% commission, and they went out trying to find a naming rights partner. And that was that. Then a couple of months later, he came to me and said, they couldn't find anything. Can you try it? And, well, sure, Greg, I'm, it's not like I'm 
busy or anything. Yeah, you know, I'm building an organization. I'm speaking every day at every group. We're trying to get the arena built. We're we're training the everybody. But sure. Anyway, I, long and short, you know, ended up getting the Arco Arena deal done, and we had to go through the NBA and a lot of battles to get the name on the the basketball floor and the 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 networks that were carrying the games didn't want that because it was free advertising. The local newspaper wouldn't call it Arco Arena because they thought it was free advertising. So we're we're clearing all these hurdles. But along the way, Barry Ackerley sees Arco Arena and he sees it as like the biggest billboard ever. And I think we made like uh, I think it was like seven million dollars over ten years. Again, small dollars today, but big dollars back then. And one of the things Ackerley was dreaming about was building a new arena for his team. And I'd just been through that process. And I popped a name on it, which had never been done. And we went from near bottom of the NBA to top five in the NBA in revenues. Um, so he interviewed me to you know, pretty much take over his job. And, and that's how I got to, to Seattle. And you're, you're being brought in as general manager of the team, all basketball operations. What's, what's the specific? No, I, I am specifically hired to be the president to oversee the entire operation with the specific understanding that we had a full-time general manager, Lenny Wilkins, who uh, had been the coach, uh, actually was the coach of the championship team, and um, Ackerley had fired him the year before um, he brought me on. But rather than pay him what he owed him, he made him become the general manager because Ackerley was not going to pay anybody that he owed money to to not work. So Lenny was sort of the general manager that didn't want to be their general manager because he really wanted to keep coaching. But it's still a full-time job and a lot of responsibility. And I took the job with the understanding that Lenny would, would continue on as GM. I made it a condition that you talk to Lenny before I finalize my deal. Cause I, I respected Lenny. He's, you know, he's a legend, you know, he's a legend in the NBA. I knew him a little bit and I liked him and he was highly, highly, highly respected and loved in Seattle. And I didn't want this young 30 year old whippersnapper to be his boss. If this guy didn't feel like I should be his boss. So Ackerley told me, of course, I'll talk to Lenny. And then he told me he talked to Lenny and Lenny was excited and that uh, it was all set. I said, okay, I'll take the job. And then I said, Barry, the very first thing I want is a meeting with you, me and Lenny, just to have a, you know, get off on the right foot kind of thing. And uh, again, these stories are in the book, but they're interesting. So the first day on the job, it's a Saturday. I'm supposed to meet Lenny and Barry at the Sonics office, and obviously nobody will be there. And as I'm walking down the sidewalk to come to the front door of the office, Lenny's walking up the sidewalk the other way. And he looks and he, he knows I come in town to, to see Jan, and, and, but there was no game that weekend. He says, Bob, what are you doing here? I go, well, Lenny, I'm here to meet with you. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, Lenny, why are you here? And, and he goes, well, Barry told me he wanted to meet with me. And I said, Lenny, has Barry told you about him hiring me? He goes, no, he hasn't met with me at all. So Lenny and I are in the elevator going up to the office. And as soon as we get off the elevator, Barry looks at the two of us. He goes, well, you two know each other. Why don't you guys have a good meeting? And Bob, call me later. He got in the elevator and left. And the good news is Lenny was very gracious. He made it clear that 
he didn't want to be a general manager, but if, if he remained GM in Seattle, he definitely would, would be happy with me as his boss because any buffer he could have between himself and Barry was welcomed. And then I said, Lenny, let me ask you a question. Do you want to be the GM or do you want to coach? He goes, I really want to coach. I said, okay, let me, let me make some calls. And uh, Cleveland was looking for a coach, so I called Wayne Embry. And I told him, you know, the situation. He said, are you kidding me? Are you telling me Lenny could be available to coach? And I said, I'm telling you, if you want to hire him as coach and Lenny wants your job, I'll let him out of his contract. And so we did that. And then Ackerley didn't want to let him out of his contract, but I kind of rammed that down Barry's throat. And, and we let Lenny out and he continued his coaching career, which I think got him in the Hall of Fame for probably what the – second time or so. I mean, he, he, he's in as a player. I think he's certainly in as a coach also. But uh, So then I go to Barry Ackerley and I say, okay, um, I, I need to hire a general manager. And I was pretty excited because I had some guys I thought could do a good job. And he said, no, 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 no. You're the general manager. I said, Barry, I'm the president. And these are two different jobs and they're both full-time jobs. He goes, you're the president and the general manager. And obviously, yeah, there was no more money involved or anything like that, but uh, that's kind of how I, so from day one, uh, you know, literally, you know, except for maybe the first week on the job, I, I was the president and general manager for my, my entire time in Seattle. Well, you certainly, I mean, regardless of what the title was, you certainly made a splash fairly early on. And I guess I can't sort of let this conversation drift much further without sort of I, what I think was kind of the shot across the bow, so to speak. Uh, do you want to talk about the, uh, the uh, uh, arrival and the, the finding and the, the drafting of Sean Kemp, because I think that was a breakthrough situation, not only for the franchise, but for the league too. That was a great, great draft for us. Um, so this was probably my, probably my fourth season. And um, very fortunate that the very first year I took the train wreck and I pretty much traded everybody except a few guys and we were the Cinderella team that made it to the Final Four and, and lost to the Lakers. But that kind of cemented my standing a little bit with Ackerley and um, uh, was the catalyst to, to me getting a new deal and, and having a little bit of length on my contract. So uh, as we're going into the 1989 draft, uh, I had an extra first-round pick from a prior trade I'd made. And I always remembered Red Auerbach. And... Um, you know, Red was not the greatest personnel guy, but what Red was great at was conviction. If he really believed something, he would swing for the fence. And he struck out a lot, but nobody seems to remember those. But they do remember him getting Larry Bird as a junior eligible, him taking the, the pick, which was Joe Barry Carroll, and trading it to Golden State for uh, basically Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. Uh, him drafting a baseball player in Toronto who's never going to play in the NBA, a guy named Danny Ainge. So every big deal he did that hit big were key pieces to his championship puzzle. And I always thought a franchise stuck in the mud like the Sonics were, were never going to get the number one pick so you could get a, a no-brainer like uh, LeBron James or Akeem Olajuwon or, or, or any of those kinds of guys. We have to find a way to, to hit a big one. 
And I saw this guy, Sean Kemp. He played in, in high school. He was Mr. Basketball in Indiana. And I still had guys in Indiana that I knew quite well from my Pacers day. He was a phenom. And he was actually, unlike most high school kids, he wasn't just a skinny little high school kid. He was actually kind of a man. I mean, he had a he had an NBA mature body, but he got caught up in some some sort of scandalous situations. He didn't go to Indiana with Bobby Knight. He went to Kentucky. Then there was an incident there, caused him to transfer after his freshman year. He had to sit out. He couldn't play because his his grades were too low. So he went to a, a junior college in Texas. He had to sit out. So basically, he sat out what would have been his freshman year of college. He attended two different universities, and he never played a minute of, of college basketball. And he decided to declare himself for the draft. And in 1989, there had not been a, a high school to college, a high school to pro draft selection, probably for, uh, I should know this because I wrote it in, in the book, but probably 10 or 15 years. And I saw this guy play, and I couldn't believe it. So then I sent my scouts down to L.A. where he was living for the summer. I said, go down there and just tell me what you think. They came back and, and said, you're right. I said, great. So then I, I had him come up to Seattle, and I got him involved with some AAU games, and I brought my coaches down to watch with me. They liked him, but coaches don't like young guys because they don't like to develop young guys. They like finished product. So I said to Bernie Bickerstaff, the coach, Bernie wanted a point guard, and that's what—that's the only thing he really wanted in that draft. And I said, Bernie, we've got two draft picks. Let's rank the point guards, and we had them ranked. And I said, I'll take the best point guard on the board that's left for us at number 16, but at, at 17, I want to take Sean Kemp. And Bernie was great. Most coaches would say no, but he said, look, if you get me the point guard I need, I don't care what you do with the pick. You can trade it for a future pick. I said, great. I just want to make sure you're not going to fight me on this. He said, no. If you get me the point guard, I'll support anything you, you say to the owner. The point guard turned out to be Dana Barros, who was a, a nice player for us. But that's a different story. So I go to the owner, and um, he told me no. And then he told me no. And then he told me no. And I'm giving it my sales pitch, and I'm telling him that this guy's going to be a combination of Dominique Wilkins and Charles Barkley. I mean, he can jump out of the building like Dominique, but he's as powerful as Barkley. He's, he's going to be his own guy. And if, if it if it's, turns out the way I think it will, this franchise is going to take off. And if it doesn't, you know, a lot of mid-round picks don't pan out anyway. And then he told me no again. Nobody knows who he is. We can't sell any tickets. And then finally, I, I said, are you telling me I can't take him? And he said, I'm telling you, I don't want you to take him. And I said, I understand that. But are you telling me I can't take him? I'm telling you, I don't want you to take him. And if it doesn't pan out, you know what's going to happen. I'll find a new general manager. I said, I, I, I hear you. I, I kind of hear that a lot from you. But so anyway, I drafted him and it was a, you know, the drafts weren't quite the same as they are today. We didn't always have footage on, on every player. And certainly if a player didn't play in college, there was no footage. So I'm in front of the, the fan base. You know, there's some footage on Dana Barrows because he played at Boston College and he's shooting three-pointers and they like that. And then I announce 
I'm taking a 6'10 player from Trinity Valley Junior College named Sean Kemp. Nobody in Seattle had ever heard of Trinity Valley, Valley Junior College. I had to tell them it was in Texas. Nobody had ever heard of Sean Kemp. I got booed out of the building. The media thought I'd lost my marbles. And, um, you know, but as you know, the draft is like a, a one-day deal and the media lingers on for about a week. And then after that, ultimately, it gets down to how well the players play over a longer period of time. And Sean Kemp became the cornerstone of uh, the Sonics team in the mid-90s that was a great, great basketball team. And, and then the following year, I got the second cornerstone. That was a, a, a guard named Gary Payton. Yeah, and and two names that are, are are synonymous, right? I think with the golden era of well, there was obviously a first golden era with the, with the championship team prior, but um, I, I would argue as soon as later on when the Sonics uh, uh, went through their their messy um, move to Oklahoma City, which is a whole other conversation, and uh, goodness, goodness knows that uh, it, you could you have some opinions on that, but um, I, the the fact that um, that the, those two guys are still revered, I think, even in Seattle, even though they haven't had a team in 15, 20 years. They're iconic. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this the right way and say it respectfully. But that team, let's call it the Peyton Kemp team. You know, obviously, there's a lot of other great players. You know, Sam Perkins, Nate McMillan, uh, Detlef Shrimp. You know, you can go down the list. But that actually was the best team in Sonics history from the standpoint of how good it was for so long. The championship team is the best because they won the championship, but they were really a great team for two seasons. They made it to the finals, and then the following year they won it. So they only had really a two-year window of greatness and wonderful that they won the championship. This Sonics team really had, uh, you know, five, six, seven years of, you know, winning – mid fifties, low sixties, they, you know, best records in the league, you know, a lot of playoff wins, everything, but winning the championship. So when you talk to fans in Seattle today and you talk modern day basketball, uh, they always start with Peyton to Kemp, Kemp to Peyton. And it wasn't just a great basketball team in terms of the records, which were phenomenal. It was an unbelievably exciting brand of basketball we extended the court full court. We we had athletes. We defended. We led the league in steals. People forget about that. Every single night, there was an amazing ESPN highlight of Sean Kemp doing a dunk. And I've seen them all. I've seen every one of Sean's dunk, including his high school and, and uh, practices. And, you know, there wasn't a week that didn't go by where even I'd go, wow, I hadn't seen that one before. I mean, he... You know, it was just spectacular, entertaining uh, basketball. And and when you came into Seattle, if you got out of there with a win, you really, really accomplished something. The fans were great. The buildings were sold out. They were loud. It was, uh, you know, you had Pearl Jam. It was a it was a star-studded event. People came to see those teams because it was the thing to do in Seattle. And it was it was just really exciting and a lot of fun. I wish I had known you then because I would have gotten better seats. I actually lived there for about two. I lived I lived there for two years around that time. So oh, so you you so you. Hopefully, I'm not overselling it, but hopefully no, you you agree no, with what you're, I'm saying. 
you're also forgetting something very, I, from a marketing perspective, also the logo, the the renovation of the logo and the, the dark green color. And I, I think that actually still stands out and holds up today if it were ever to be a, a Sonics team once again. Uh, I think that that sort of logo scheme was uh, built for merchandise and and uh, was just uh, elegant, I think, in its modernness. I agree. I think that it was very cool. And uh, when we get a team back, I think, we, you know, the proper way to do it is build on the history and the tradition and the 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 the, the original logo, the revised logo. And then there's certainly going to be a, a Sonic 2.0 or whatever you want to call it. But the great thing about teams today, we have our base colors, our base logos, and then I mean, you can turn on a game and you'll see guys wearing pink uniforms, you, you know, for for a particular cause, which is fantastic. Or you'll see teams whose colors are, let's let's take the signings, green and gold. They might be wearing black uniforms. So there's so much you can do with the marketing today. I think it will be extremely exciting and and fun, but you also get to use the time tested stuff and and and, and emblems and colors and logos that the fans identify with. So give them what they want, but then give them next generation. And I think you can put it together in a scheme that really is, is a big wow for everybody. Okay. I don't want to, uh, ex- I've, I've, I've already taken an hour of your time and I could easily go into the, 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 uh, the trailblazers and the Seahawks and all that kind of stuff, the Paul Allen stuff. Um, I don't want to preclude, I don't want to presume that I've got more time here for this, but <clears throat> excuse me. I do want to, um, so maybe we could do a part two someday, maybe closer to the book, because we can keep, you know, the, those sure, could be stories sure. in and of themselves. Uh, but maybe we, uh, just to put a coda on this, and if I don't cough myself uh, into oblivion here, excuse me, um, maybe we could cul-de-sac this into your thoughts about um, the Sonics ultimately leaving Seattle. Seattle as a basketball market, um, I think by most accounts, if not just about all accounts, uh, the um, ridiculous and uh, completely unfair and bizarrely situated um, path they wound up leaving town. Uh, and you hinted at it, but I, I'm assuming you feel very strongly that uh, Seattle could once again be an NBA franchise home, uh, especially given what's gone on since that time in pro sports there. I do. Let me let me back up for a second. When the team left Kansas City and moved to Sacramento and and the, the two years prior when I was meeting with politicians and business leaders and pleading them to work with us because if we could make the team profitable, the team would stay there and a, a new team would show up in Sacramento. And I said something then and it was purely just shooting from the hip. I had no basis to say this, but I told the mayor and the council in in Kansas City, if you lose the Kings, it's going to be 25 years before you even have a chance to get another NBA team. And they, I don't want to say they laughed at me, but they, they certainly discarded what I said. Well, it's been a lot longer than that. They've built a public arena, and they've never had a, even a remote chance of getting a team. Uh, I told people when the Sonics left in 2008, we'll start there for a minute. It was devastating. It was gut-wrenching. It was a, It was really a, hurt me on a personal level, a professional level. Um, our fans 
really got screwed. It, it, the people involved in letting that happen, uh, shame on them. And we can talk about that in a minute. But soon after they left, people were coming to me that, that next year or so and always saying to me, well, we're going to get a team back real soon, aren't we? Because the NBA needs us, right? And I said, guys, I was on the NFL's relocation committee for nine years. And during those nine years, we did not have a team in Los Angeles. And the NFL did fantastic. And LA is the second largest market in the country. The NBA is doing fantastic. They don't need Seattle. Now, I'm not saying they won't come back, but a friend of mine reminded me a, a week or two ago, Bob, I'll never forget, when they left, you told me it's going to be 20 years before we get a team back. And I go, well, count them up. And so for years I've been saying, don't even ask me about the conversation because we are not eligible for a team because we don't have an NBA-suitable arena. Well, a few years ago, uh, a man named David Bonderman came into town with a, a company called Oakview, which was headed by Tim Lywicki, mm -hmm. uh, back to our Lywickies. And they bid on uh, re redoing uh, the Coliseum or the Key Arena, whatever building you want to call it. And uh, Todd Lywicki joined Tim, and the, and the Lywickies asked me to join them full-time. I said, I'd love to, guys, but I, I really can't. I'm in law school right now. <laughs> I, odd thing to say, but I'm pretty, it takes a lot of time. But yes, I'll be a consultant. I'll work with you. But the first thing I want to do is um, meet with David Bonderman. And I said to David, you know, the Lewickies really want me to help them, you know, get the new arena built and help launch the NHL team, you know, in the market. Um Happy to do both those both of those things for really only one reason. Uh, if you tell me you're committed to trying to bring an NBA team back to Seattle, if and when the time is right. And David looked me in the eyes and he said, I am. I own 10% of the Celtics now. I love the NBA. Uh, I said, because the only chance we'll ever have is if we have an NBA-ready arena. And so we kind of agreed My one of my primary jobs was as we're doing the arena is to make sure it's not just a hockey arena, because if you're running a hockey team, you tend to do things just for the hockey team. Mm -hmm. If you're running a basketball team, sometimes you tend to design things just for the basketball team. My job was to keep my eyes on the design and make sure that it worked for the NBA, the modern NBA. And if they were doing things that would prevent that, I was to raise my hand, have a meeting, get ownership involved and, Let's make the changes necessary. The good news is the whole team worked uh, diligently to make it a great facility for the NHL and a great facility for the NBA. So in many respects, I was part of my job. I was, I was like the Maytag repairman. I didn't really have to do a lot because nobody was trying to shortchange the NBA. So now we have an NBA-ready facility. I'm not saying we're going to get a team tomorrow. But now we qualify because if and when the NBA says it's time to expand uh, or if they ever wanted to move, we have a facility that the NBA would say that works for us. So I've changed my speech from if we ever get an NBA team in Seattle to when we're going to get an NBA team in Seattle. I feel very strongly that in the near future, and that could be two years, that could be five years. I'm not the... Uh, I'm not the NBA. I'm not the commissioner, um, although I do 
meet with a lot of those folks on a semi-regular basis because of my, my day job and other things I'm working on. I do believe that expansion will be coming up down the road. And there's no doubt in my mind Seattle should be at the top of the list because it will support the NBA as well as any other market uh, in existence. And by the way, it supported the NBA extremely well uh, before, which is why the team should have never left town. Uh, you know, I helped move a team out of a, a city that was not supporting a team. And under my way of thinking, that's the only rationale you should have to possibly consider moving a team. And even then, it's a very serious thing. You can't take it lightly. And when in doubt, you should not move a team. In Seattle's case, the team had been supported really, really well. The fans did nothing wrong. The sponsors were there. The fan base was there. It was a function of ownership and other things that, that and egos that, you know, made the team leave town. So um, that was 2008. Who knows? I, I hope it's not 20 years, but it's probably going to be closer to 20 years than not. Because if and when you're awarded an expansion team, that means a year or two later is when you'll play your first game. So that's where that is. I, I believe it's going to happen. I don't have any firsthand basis where I can, you know, go down to town square and make a big speech about it. But uh, I'm 100% committed to being involved in any way I can uh, to help make that happen. And, and, and I want to see that happen. Uh, I, I guess the only thing left out on that that front, though, is um, do you ever have you had any conversations with Tim Lewicki, who's very much involved in trying to get Las Vegas a franchise? I've had conversations with Tim, with Todd, with David Bonderman, with Sam Holloway, his daughter, who's the point person now for the like the co-chairman of the Kraken. I've met with uh, NBA officials. I meet with everybody. And uh, maybe it's Tim, a two for one deal, perhaps. Maybe no, no. Tim is not looking to own any team. Tim is Tim is a facilities builder and operator. Sure. And in Tim's world, having an expansion team in, in his building in Seattle, having an expansion team in his building in Las Vegas, having NBA teams in other buildings that he operates in, all wonderful, all great. That's what he wants because he has no conflicts. His job is to keep the, the arenas full, you know, whether it's booking the concerts, the, the family shows, the sporting events, whatever it may be. So I think Tim would be a very instrumental player, but I don't think Tim would be part of an ownership group because he would be conflicted out. And again, I'm not I'm not speaking for Tim. I'm just giving you my my thoughts on the matter. But uh, yeah, no, Tim and, and company are working on an arena in Vegas and in Vegas. There's multiple facilities, so there's a there's a different dynamic down there. You might have multiple groups making bids on multiple arenas, which might make the process more complicated for Las Vegas, but more attractive to the NBA because there's nothing like an auction. Yeah, <laughs> no, sure, for sure. All right, so th this has been absolutely awesome, Bob. Uh, more stuff than I was even uh, hoping for, and unfortunately, we didn't get to half of it right so um here's what i'd love to suggest if if you're cool with it um your book for according to amazon uh looks like it's coming out roughly early october is that does that uh, october, you know? october 10th is the uh, the date it comes out so what i'd love to do is in the coming weeks uh get this episode out and we'll we'll pre you know we'll tease the hell out of it of course we'll get people to do the pre-order which is easily done on amazon and all that kind of stuff 
Um, and then maybe with your permission and your schedule, um, maybe we could do a part two sometime closer to the book release, say in September sometime. Um, I'd, lo I'd love to do that. And uh, again, uh, let's just coordinate the schedules, but I'll always block enough time for you to let me pontificate as long as you want. Because well, I, I know, I know yeah. podcasts, the one thing they like is, unlike normal media, longer is better. If you want to chop it up, you can chop it up. But they like they like stories and they like more in-depth and um, they can have a little more fun with it. Now, our audience is just going to eat this up because, I, you know, I'd love to talk about the Paul Allen stuff and, and, and yeah, no, great. No, I'd, love, and I'd love to do the arena you know, stuff and, and, you know, yeah. even get to the soccer stuff with the with the Seattle, uh, the outdoor. Sure. Uh, yeah. No, we, uh, and, and, you know, you're I know you've done some stuff with facilities, but make a note uh, when we were lobbying uh, Olympia to get the public funds to help us build the stadium. Kind of the secret sauce was us getting the soccer community involved, which helped to get uh, a number of the votes we needed in exchange for us making sure we built a facility that would be a world-class soccer facility. And lo and behold, without that facility, there'd be no Seattle Sounders. So yeah, we, definitely. Did, we, we upheld our end of the bargain. The, the, the soccer team came in. They've been a different story, just another great success story. But uh, so it really was a win-win because the soccer community got their dreams answered too. So the, the Seahawks stayed, the football fans were happy, the other football fans were happy. And, uh, so no, I, uh, you, know, I remember, you actually feel good about that going backwards. I, I feel yeah, good about that. I, so, and I do want to get to that in our next conversation because I do yeah. remember that. I mean, it was called the football soccer stadium. something And exhibitions because there we also go. built an exhibitions center for all the home shows and boat shows and car shows that we're no, getting to the master strip at the, yeah, at the, at the kingdom. So it was truly one of those, I can look back and say, we did everything we said we would do and more. Everybody got what they were hoping to get out of it. Nobody got screwed. I even had some politicians years later call me up who voted against it saying, you know what? You actually did what you said. If I was going to vote over, I'd vote for it because I never dreamed it would turn out that way. And that's a rare thing when you're trying to get public funds for something. So that that's no. That and they're and they're getting thirty nine, forty thousand a game on average. Right. Yeah. So, no, they, they're number average, one right? in the league. They're, they're doing a fantastic job. So that's uh, you should get those. You know, you should get. Adrian Anauer and his group on someday because I think the Sounders have done a fantastic job and let them work you through how they did that. All right, that uh, is a, a pretty cool set of uh, conversational goodness for you. And uh, we are going to put a pin in that and have uh, Bob back uh, probably a little closer to uh, when the book uh, officially comes out, uh, I think the book comes out uh, officially in early October. We'll try to endeavor to have Bob back here uh, sometime, say, in early to mid-September uh, to continue this conversation because we were just getting going uh, with the uh, turn into the Seattle Supersonic story. Uh, and there's plenty of things to dig deeper into there. Uh, certainly the Trailblazers, uh, that move and the world of Paul Allen and the Seahawks and the now Lumen Field, the construction of all that, uh, all that kind of stuff. So much more to go into. And I'll probably think of a few more Kansas City Kings uh, questions uh, to ask as well by that time. The book, though, is available for pre-order now. 
uh, on Amazon and, of course, through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Again, search up this episode. We list them all on our website uh, after we finish them uh, each and every week. Uh, It's episode number 311, if you're counting at home. Uh, Our episode uh, this week with Bob Whitsitt. You will find a convenient link or two or three uh, to the book called Game Changer, an insider's story of the Sonics resurgence, the Trailblazers turnaround, and the deal that saved the Seahawks. Uh, Again, it's coming out in October. You can pre-order it now, however. And the link on our website will take you right to Amazon and we'll get uh, a nickel, maybe seven or eight cents worth of (laughs) referral love. And we appreciate that. Uh, Those nickels and dimes do, uh, do add up. Uh, occasionally allowing us to get a cup of coffee or a, another cool beverage, depending on the temperature outside. Uh, and the book is published by Flashpoint Press. And um, we look forward to having Bob back. So that'll be a, a great conversation, something to uh, set a bookmark for uh, very, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, what else? While you're online, again, bookmark our website, goodseatstillavailable.com. Uh, always goodness to be found there. Uh, if you'd like to send us some email, please, by all means, do so. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. On social media, you'll find us on Twitter at goodseatsstill. You'll find us on Instagram and on Facebook at goodseatsstillavailable. Our thanks, of course, each and every week as we do, we tip our hat to the great Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you, sir, for your knob twiddling again this week, as always. I said as always a couple of times, but as always. And uh, we thank you, as always, for listening and uh, for supporting the show. We appreciate it greatly. Until next week, stay safe, stay smog-free, stay cool, and um, we'll see you. Bye.